Hello, Rebecca Mays here for this week's edition of Stick Together, focusing on union news and social justice issues. I want to acknowledge that this program was recorded on the stolen lands of the Kulin Nation and that their sovereignty has never been ceded. This episode of Stick Together was produced on Jarjarwaran country and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. It is brought to you on your local community radio station thanks to the Community Broadcasting Foundation. This week, I spoke with Chris Spindler, an AMWU organiser, to follow up on the workers at the Alston Rail Workshop in Ballarat. We'll also hear from Colin Long, the Just Transitions organiser with the Victorian Trades and Labour Council, about the challenges involved in transitioning away from fossil fuels and how the pandemic presents us with a unique opportunity for change. But first, some union news. The New Daily this week reported on companies using the COVID-19 pandemic as a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to sack workers. Employment lawyers and unions say they have been swamped with unfair redundancy claims since COVID-19 sent the country into a recession and forced the jobless rate to its highest level since 1998. Robert Klaus, 59, was a storeman at food services company PFD for nine years before the pandemic. He was made redundant in September. His case will be lodged to the Victorian Civil and Administrative Tribunal, or VCAT, on the basis of discrimination. They said my position had become redundant because of the skills matrix exercise. They believed I was in the bottom area of skills. He said he had never heard of the skills matrix and senior management refused to offer transparency on how it worked during his redundancy negotiations. Since he has been away, workers on his shift have allegedly worked overtime every day. They could not at any time explain how they came up with the skills matrix exercise, what skills I was lacking in and why I was chosen, he said. Mr. Klaus was made redundant just seven days before the company came off JobKeeper, but he believes he was singled out by management for asking the company to support workers through a pandemic payment. It's extremely depressive and it's hard to cope at times, he said. It's quite difficult at this stage to find work again, especially at 59. United Workers' Union Director of Food and Beverage, Susie Allison, said the case highlighted multi-million dollar companies using the pandemic as an excuse to scrap hard-working employees. We want to see companies acting with integrity, especially after taking millions in taxpayer-funded subsidies, Ms Allison said. In May, the Fair Work Commission revealed that there had been a 70% spike in unfair dismissal claims because of the coronavirus crisis. Fair Work Commission General Manager Bernadette O'Neill told a Senate committee they were at record levels. The increase in unfair dismissal has been unprecedented, significantly higher than any other period from our records, she said. Last week, the federal government committed to adopting all Aged Care Royal Commission recommendations about addressing COVID-19 in aged care facilities. Yet the budget contained no allocated spending on a key Royal Commission recommendation about funding providers to ensure adequate staffing to allow more meaningful visits for residents. Residents are literally dying of loneliness. The federal government commits to help them, and yet the very next week, there are no specific funds set aside in the budget to live up to the promise, United Workers Union Aged Care Director Carolyn Smith said. That's about as heartless as it gets. If this is what Richard Colbeck does with the Royal Commission recommendations on COVID-19, heaven help aged care workers and the residents they care for when the Royal Commission releases its final report. 
Ms Smith called on the federal government to provide transparency and accountability for budget buckets of funding, including $245 million for COVID-19 supplies, $103 million for aged care facilities preparedness for outbreaks, and $92 million for aged care workers to be employed at a single site during outbreaks. Once again, the budget contains no specific funding measures allocated to -to day-to-day residential care staffing, Ms Smith said. Our members know only too well what happens to buckets of funding. They end up as high-end foyer art and Ferraris for the owners. Workers and residents are left to do the best they can out the back. For the aged care system to work, we know that funding has to be directed to the frontline workers, and that includes any funding of COVID-19 measures. Families around Australia have experienced the COVID-19 crisis in aged care, yet this federal government has made no financial commitment to fix a major COVID-19 shortfall identified by the Royal Commission. The families of two food delivery drivers who were killed in road accidents in Sydney may face financial ruin due to the lack of workers' compensation or insurance for gig economy workers. Dede Freddy, a 36-year-old Uber Eats rider, and Xiaojun Chen, a 43-year-old worker for the delivery app Hungry Panda, were killed in separate accidents late last month. Both men lived alone in Australia and were working as food delivery riders to send money back to their families. Chen leaves behind a wife and two children, aged 8 and 15, in China, while Freddy leaves behind a wife and young son in Indonesia. Chen's widow, Li Hongwei, told Guardian Australia his death had devastated their family and left her as the only carer for their two children and for her parents, who are disabled. Most gig economy workers are not eligible for standard workers' compensation, said Nick McIntosh, the Assistant National Secretary of the Transport Workers' Union. Under the New South Wales Workers' Compensation Scheme, the dependents of someone who dies because of a work-related injury are entitled to a lump sum payment of $834,200 and weekly payments of $149.30 for each dependent child under the age of 16. But deliverers for Uber Eats and Hungry Panda are classified as independent contractors, not employees. Under the insurance policy provided by Uber Eats, the dependents of a deliverer who dies while working are eligible for a maximum of a $400,000 lump sum and potentially $5,000 for each spouse or dependent. McIntosh said this was well below the New South Wales standard compensation and it was not even clear from the Uber Eats contract whether Freddie's family would be eligible for the company's insurance. Freddie's family is still in Indonesia and missed his funeral in Australia. Chen's family want to attend his funeral but are still waiting on a visa. Wei said Hungry Panda had verbally promised to cover her accommodation and meals while in Australia but she did not know if they would receive any insurance or how much. Flights to Australia cost tens of thousands of dollars and Wei said she had asked Hungry Panda to cover the cost. If it refused, she said she would borrow the money from her family and friends. McIntosh said it was tragic that both men had so few rights while working in the gig economy to make money for their families. You've got 36-year-old Dede trying to do the right thing and earn whatever he can to make a living, he said. He has a young son in Indonesia, and of course he is the main breadwinner and the one that was supporting his family. Uber Eats did not notify Safe Work New South Wales of Freddie's accident until five days after it had happened, and two days after he had died, according to the company's own records. McIntosh said this was unacceptable given Uber was one of the companies earning a huge amount of money during the pandemic. You are talking about a multinational company that is paying celebrities huge amounts of money to be on primetime advertising, saying use Uber Eats, he said. 
I note that in the ads you hear a doorbell ring and you see an almost invisible hand coming out with a bag. You don't even see the driver. That is symbolic of how they treat their drivers. If this was any other company, an Australian company this happened to, where we had a worker seriously injured on site who ultimately passed away, there would be coronial investigations. You would probably have the workplace shut down. Given the growth of this work, these people are meant to be heroes of this pandemic, he said. As of Monday morning, local residents have helped raise $38,000 to help Chun's widow get to Australia for Chun's funeral. Families in Ballarat, who have also lost loved ones at work, are aiming to raise $10,000 for a workers' memorial to be placed near the site of a trench collapse in 2018, which killed two men. The fundraiser has been started by Ballarat's Kelly Doubly, a friend of Jack Brownlee, one of the men who died in hospital the following day after the collapse. Two weeks ago, the families announced they had chosen Ballarat artist Gary Anderson to construct the new memorial, which aims to become a centrepiece for future commemorations. Mr. Doubly has set a goal of $10,000 from the fundraiser to form part of the hundred dollars to $200,000 that is likely to be needed to create the memorial at the new Winter Valley Estate. The memorial will be an opportunity for not just these two families to be able to visit and share memories of their loved ones, but for all families that have lost loved ones from workplace incidents. To make a donation, search Ballarat Regional Workers Memorial Fundraiser Walk on the GoFundMe page. Data released on Monday the 10th of October by Safe Work Australia, tracking workplace injuries and fatalities in 2019, shows the rate of workplace deaths increasing for the first time since 2007, as the Morrison government continues to drag its feet on work health and safety reform. 183 workers died during 2019, 38 more than in 2018, with the biggest increases coming in transport, 58 compared to 38, and across New South Wales, 61 compared to 47. The increase in transport likely downplays the horrific rates of injury and death for delivery workers in the gig economy as many work-related deaths which occur on our roads are counted as traffic accidents rather than workplace fatalities. The data also shows the rate of claims through workers' compensation for serious injuries increasing in agriculture, manufacturing, transport and logistics as well as health, community and personal services. The Morrison government is yet to act on the recommendations of a 2018 review of national work health and safety legislation which recommended industrial manslaughter provisions which would hold employers responsible where they cause the deaths of working people and regulations governing psychological injury and ill health which would mean factors contributing to mental illness in the workplace would be treated like physical hazards. The delay is making workplaces less safe. Governments could also act immediately to accurately track deaths and injuries in transport and logistics, like what was recently introduced in Victoria. ACTU Assistant Secretary Liam O'Brien said, Every worker has the right to go to work and come home safe. Sadly, this data shows the appalling toll of government inaction on workplace health and safety. Nearly four deaths every week while the Morrison government talked up economic growth before the pandemic. Every death at work is preventable. You're listening to Stick Together, Worker Stories and Union News, broadcast around the country every week on the Community Radio Network.
This week, I caught up with Chris Spindler, an organiser with the Australian Manufacturing Workers Union, to catch up on the fate of workers at the Alston Rail Workshop. Chris also talked about Yarra Tram's maintenance workers being impacted by payroll mistakes and ongoing safety concerns. It's uh, tough times, isn't it, all of this? Really tough. I think it's uh, it's been so long now, it's really starting to eat home and uh, people are really, you know, there's no novelty anymore. It's all just freaking hard work. Could you give us an update on what's happened to the workers at the rail workshop in Ballarat? So the whole Alstom thing has gone reasonably well. All but one person are at Bombardier now. So that's been a, a relative success in terms of looking after those guys. So what was worked out with them was the government basically has funded an extra shift at Bombardier to do work, right? I mean, they're actually doing work. They're not just sitting around. So the Alstom employees are functioning more or less like a supplementary labour crew, like a contractor crew at Bombardier. And so the guarantee is that they're going to be housed there for two years, leading up to a contract to go back to Alstom to build trains once the timing of that contract comes up. So they were looking down the barrel of having nothing they've actually got a job and it looks like they will have some sort of contract at the end of that couple of years to then go back to Alstom so pretty good result. Great and what else did you want to tell us about? Yarra trams who are creating some havoc around the place we've got a range of like safety concerns they haven't been paying their people properly for now like at least six or eight weeks. It's in incompetence. This was after the introduction of the 36-hour week in the middle of the year. And, and for whatever reason, their payroll just can't handle it. And their people are basically just not able to... <laughs> they just... I can't believe some of the mistakes I've seen, but they, they just can't seem to pay people properly. One guy had four sickies in day had to go to hospital, have some tests and da da da, had four sickies one week and he got paid eight hours per day for two of them and he got paid nine hours per day for the other two of them. So where's where's the logic in that? Like it should have been nine hours, so he was underpaid a couple of hours, but where's the logic in having two in one and two of another? And then there's a a thing where there's this just we've got three disputes with them at the moment. Over terms and entitlements but this is this relates to some of the pay issues like where if you work the majority of your shift before midnight on a Sunday then you're supposed to get double time for the whole shift and they haven't been doing that they've basically stopped it at midnight and just paying you 30 percent the other week there was one employee that just got 36 dollars for a fortnight's pay uh you know like I know it's just it, the whole thing is just an absolute shambles at the moment you know, and then they're trying to take some long-held conditions off some of the workshop guys at Preston. So there's all this sort of crap going on. Some of the disputes they are they are engineering to try to claw some money back. Um, the pay mistakes are, are mistakes, but it's just incompetence. But there's a term in the agreement which we're going to start to use, which says if once you acknowledge them, once your trams acknowledges a pay mistake, they have 48 hours to fix it. And if they don't, well, then they're breaking the agreement. So we're going to say, well, where they've tried to fix up a person's pay, they've basically acknowledged it, but it's still mistaken or still wrong. 
then and they haven't fixed it within 48. So now we have a quite a number of cases like that because it's been going on for so long. So we're referring that to our lawyers to basically say, well, you're breaking your agreement because you haven't fixed it within the 48 hours. We want to basically impose ourselves on Yarra trams and expose them for their incompetence. After the first couple of fortnights, you'd think, well, surely they can just pay us for what we've worked. It's not that hard. The message to state government, and we've told them this, because they want to attract people back to public transport as the COVID restrictions lift, yeah? So as time goes on, they'll want to attract people back to start making it a more viable operation. They're not getting the revenue, and they, the state government's taken the decision, and all credit to them in this sense, that they want to keep the service rolling, and they've bankrolled that, and that's, and that's all good. You know, that's terrific. But then... We've got concerns about the incompetence of Yarra trams and some of the safety concerns is they still front up trams that are dirty to get worked on. And we've been saying, really, you need to clean the trams before you expect your workers to work on them. And we're saying, well, if you won't do that for your workforce, can the public be sure that you're going to do it for them? You know, it's a safety concern all the way around, not just for the workforce, but for the public too. So I know that they'll want to attract people back and try to reassure people that they're clean, but really you you have to do it for everyone, not just for the public and not just for your workforce, but for everyone. We still have quite a few unresolved safety concerns in Yarra that need to get some attention, really. You know, like for overall overall safety, yes, there's, a, there's an issue there. There's no doubt. You're listening to Stick Together, workers' stories and social justice issues on your local community radio station. We just heard from Chris Spindler about Yarra Trams maintenance workers fighting for pay and safety entitlements. Next, we'll hear from Colin Long, the Just Transitions organiser at the Victorian Trades Hall Council, about the challenges of transitioning away from fossil fuels and the possibilities for change. So, uh, yeah, I'm Colin Long. I'm the Just Transitions Organiser at Victorian Trades Hall Council, where I'm responsible for just transitions for workers affected by the need to transition away from fossil fuels, climate change policy and energy policy more generally. And I do a fair bit of work on cooperatives and um, other alternative forms of economic organisation as well. I know it can be a bit complicated, like within the union movement, there's like different people, different unions, mm. representatives in different states have different ideas. Can you just tell me a bit about how you navigate that? Navigating it is just complex, um, especially I work for a peak body, so we're reluctant to do anything unless all of the affiliates agree, which is a little bit problematic in some ways. I think it'd be good to um, have a bit of disagreement sometimes and we, we should thrash it out and see who votes yeah. for what. Sometimes it's just a matter of focusing on what we all have in common. Can so you our, give an example of that? Well, we've just completed a strategy for just transition and economic recovery, Trades Hall has. Okay. Yeah, and uh, all of the unions have endorsed it. Yeah, I mean, it's difficult, but the big emphasis of that is the opportunity. There are challenges, yes, there are big challenges to lots of jobs and lots of industry sectors from climate change, but we focus on the the opportunities that would come if we take climate change seriously and act on it properly. 
there'd be many more opportunities in terms of jobs and opportunities for unions than if we do nothing. Yeah. So we've tried to focus on those possibilities and opportunities and people can see that and they agree with that. A lot of recovery plans are aimed at returning to normal. Many people have been saying that the current crisis is an opportunity for change. Do you think there is an appetite for it? I would have thought now is the perfect time to shift to a completely mm. different paradigm. I mean, people are expecting big changes. People understand that we can't have politics as usual and the system. I mean, I think a lot of people understand now that the system was broken before COVID anyway. You know, the, the amount of insecure work, the amount of underemployment and unemployment was way too high anyway. I like to see COVID as just a stress test actually for the system and it just shows you where all the, your problems are and it sh- has shown us where all the problems are. So now's the time to talk to people about changing and doing things differently. If there's ever been a time, now's the time. And people expect governments to be doing stuff now. And the idea that the old industries, you know, that's the way we should build back again, you know, just putting more money into fossil fuels. It's just, mm. it's madness. Yeah. There's not that many jobs in fossil fuels anyway. So if you want a job-rich recovery, it's not in fossil fuels. There's yeah. just not that many jobs in them. So what do you think some of the opportunities are? Oh, look, there's so many. Um, in Victoria... I mean, there's lots of opportunities in renewables, whether it's solar in northwestern Victoria or Star of the South offshore wind in Gippsland. There's a huge amount of work to be done in the energy grid upgrade, which is actually was a good announcement by uh, Albanese the other day, that idea of setting up a government organisation to upgrade the energy grid. That was actually a good idea. So how do we convince people to transition? I mean, can we show them any concrete examples of where it's worked? Well, that's the biggest problem. We don't have a lot of examples of successful transitions anywhere in Australia, Mm. whether it's for climate reasons or for other forms of industry restructuring. We just don't do it very well in Australia. So when the car industry closes, you know, lots of people end up unemployed, never work again or never work in good jobs again. Um, Same in textile clothing footwear industry when that closed. Australia doesn't do industry restructuring as well as many other countries do. So that's a big challenge. Um, a lot of workers don't believe a just transition is possible because they haven't seen it. Yeah. No, don't blame them. Is that part of your job then? Well, that's what we are pushing as hard as we can. We keep arguing that we need to see a decent transition to show people it's possible, mm. which is why we're very keen on Star of the South because the company that wants to build Star of the South have been very good at consulting with the community and mm. unions. They want to employ locals they want to give people jobs but in the long term uh, well short medium and long term we actually think the state government and federal government should take a much more active role in transition in terms of like building and owning the electricity assets themselves the renewables Mm. don't leave it up to private capital to do it because they exploit workers that's how capitalists Uh, make money so um, we're saying now for state governments, they can get access to capital very cheaply. For the federal mm. government, they could just create the money themselves. Yeah. And they should just invest in renewables at huge scale. It's just this um, complete religious faith in, free ma- in markets, even though there's no evidence that they are delivering the transition at the pace and scale we need anywhere in the world. Could you tell us about the work you've been doing with cooperatives? Yeah, so I've been involved with Earthworker since mm. its 
inception in the late 90s and now functioning as a very interesting network really of or ecosystem of cooperatives. Earthworker, of course, directly owns a factory in Morwell making stainless steel tanks for solar hot water systems and retailing solar hot water systems with those tanks and installing. Then there's Red Gum Cleaning Cooperative. And we also have a cooperative called Hope Cooperative, which is a cooperative that's run by and for asylum seekers with a few ring-ins like myself involved. Yeah, we provide support in terms of finance and other things for students trying to get into university or TAFE or into work. But at the moment, during the COVID crisis, we've been doing a huge amount of work just um, providing food aid to asylum seekers who, of course, the federal government is trying to starve because they don't have any access to social security or job seeker or job keeper or anything like that. So if they've lost their jobs during the crisis, and many have, then they're destitute without assistance of organisations like ours. And that's obviously a deliberate strategy by the Commonwealth government to try and starve people into desperation or just to be vicious. Yeah. Do you think the growth in cooperatives is a positive that's come out of the crisis? There was a lot of mutual assistance and mutual help established mm. by people yes. um, during COVID. And, that, you know, they weren't waiting for government or business. They just said, well, we're going to help each other. We're going to yeah. do stuff around our suburbs. You know, there was organisations set up to stop evictions or people just looking out for their neighbours and things like that. I think people have realised the what can be achieved with mutual assistance and cooperatives yeah. just take takes it that step further, I think. So mm. I'm hoping, you know, a lot more interesting cooperatives will come out of all of this. You'd be surprised how many cooperatives actually do exist. Yeah, I, I'm realize. sure I would. That's a really good note to end on. Thank you. That's it for Stick Together this week. Before we finish, I wanted to give a quick update on the situation unfolding at the Japarong Embassy. Contractors have begun felling trees, some hundreds of years old, for their highway duplication. Auntie Sandra Onis has again filed proceedings with the federal court requesting a review of Federal Environment Minister Susan Lay's approval for the project in August. Lawyers are also requesting a moratorium to stop the works until the court has made its decision. The Japarung Embassy is calling on the broader community for support. To find out how you can help protect our cultural heritage, visit the Japarung Embassy Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and thanks to Chris Spindler and Colin Long for taking the time to speak with us. Stick Together is produced at 3CR Studios in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. The podcast is available at 3cr.org.au and you can contact the producers of the show at sticktogether3cr at gmail.com or by calling 03 9419 8377 and leaving us a message. Remember, wherever you are, whatever you do, there's a union for you. I'm Rebecca Mays. Catch you next time.